Welcome to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal by BDO Canada. My name is Dan Delmar along with Mike Newton of BDO. Welcome back, Mike. Hey, Dan. How are you? Excellent. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Today, we really have a, a titan in the Montreal business and academic community. His name is Franz Saint-Elemy. He's the president and COO of LetterTech, and he is also the chancellor of Université de Montréal. He co-founded a, uh, a BIPOC entrepreneur incubator called Group 3737, so we're going to talk to him about that as well, but certainly one of our more prestigious and one of our busier guests on uh, Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal. My biggest problem with this show is where to start and where to take it in a direction. I mean, there's so many ways to take this. Our show is usually pretty pretty clear as to how we're going to address it and what topic we're going to go and what direction, but man, there's just a lot on our plate here today. Yeah, so LetterTech does uh, systems uh, for road safety using AI and uh, environmental uh, monitoring. He'll, he'll get into the details. It's a bit complicated. Born out of his experience uh, as an electrical engineer. Then, of course, uh, he was appointed recently as Chancellor of UDM, so he's the head of the board there. And he co-founded this entrepreneur incubator uh, called 3737, uh, which focuses on uh, black and indigenous people of color and boosting their businesses. So how does he find time for it all? Uh, how does he uh, uh, reconcile the family dynamic? His wife also is a very successful entrepreneur. We'll get to all that with Franz saint in a few minutes. But first, our chat about current events. And Mike, in entrepreneur circles this week, there is one thing everyone's talking about, and that is banking, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, and uh, how they uh, made a few miscalculations and ended up in a lot of trouble, causing, uh, I suppose, what would you call this, Mike, a mini run on a bank? And uh, are entrepreneurs concerned about uh, runs on banks elsewhere? Um, It seems to be a lot of panic involved uh, in, in this story in the last few days. Yeah, there, there definitely is. I mean, the, the, the list was triggered at the end of last week and then just bolstered by uh, Signature Bank's uh, shuttering on last Sunday um, in New York State. Uh, and Signature Bank has been very, very heavily invested in the crypto market. Uh, I think we saw them advertise on TV in so many different ways on their on their bank cards associated to, to crypto. Um you, you know, the the, the 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 discussion of a run on the bank reminds me of, you know, we've all watched It's a Wonderful Life over the years. And there's, you know, the scene where everybody wants their money. And, you know, you say, eh, that doesn't happen in today's world. Well, unfortunately, that's pretty much what did happen last week. Um, you know, there's miscalculations, certainly. But I think one of the causes is there's two big effects. There, there was a lack of diversification, uh, and not to not to their lenders, but a lack of diversification in how they lent money, um, and, uh, sorry, invested money, and there was a lack of uh, a lack of uh, diversification in the fact that they're sitting in a sector that was predominantly tech. So I'm not sure that you can call that a lack of diversification when ultimately, at the end of the day, that was that was the purpose for the bank. Um, what hit them? I mean, let's be honest here. I mean, you're talking about a f- the Fed Reserve in the U.S. had a massive increase in interest rates, as we've dealt with in Canada as well, to try and curb inf- inflation, which basically saw depositors able to move you know, money from an almost nil earning potential uh, in an interest rate to you know, somewhere in that two and three quarters and, and up U.S. Uh, interest rate perspective. So if you had money sitting in a bank account uh, you know, and, and it was earning nothing and you, know, you didn't bother putting it into a GIC, you didn't bother putting it into a, uh, 
anything in the U.S. because there was nothing to be earned. All of a sudden, overnight, we watch uh, we watch the U.S. go from a quarter to four and three voters to four point six five. I think was the jump in the U.S. within twelve months. And you know, excuse this expression, but SVP got caught with their pants down. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, they had a committed, ongoing, uh, significant amount of deposits. And and I think the difference here between what we know as a traditional bank run uh, is this is more of a corporate bank run than it is an individual bank run. Uh, SVB had a huge amount of deposits that were coming from the startup sector, money that had been raised um, from investors who were holding, and SVB was holding on to these funds uh, in order to invest going forward. Um, you know, what do you do? If you're a bank, money comes in, you turn around and you invest it. You live off the spread, and that's great. Well, you know, when all of a sudden you've invested in long-term term deposits and GICs with the Federal Reserve or, or uh, mortgage-backed securities at low rates, and there's this massive jump at the deposit level, uh, all of a sudden there's no spread anymore. And, you know, it's hard to stay in business when all of a sudden you go to paying two and three quarters to a depositor, but you're only earning three, three and a quarter on your investments with nil liquidity because they're longer term investments. So you turn to the Fed for an overnight rate and boom. It's 4.58% to pay the feds to keep going. And all of a sudden, we see how a bank is, is in trouble. Um, you know, you combine that with, like we said, the, the, the run on funds. And uh, it's it's been an interesting 10 days with the, within the banking sector. Uh, the good news, I, I think, for those of us that started to have PTSD from 2007 and 2008's, uh, you know, financial meltdown is that the U.S. Fed and the governments will not spend public money on propping up the banks this time. Instead, it stepped in to cover deposits, guaranteeing above the FDIC insurance, which in the U.S. is $250,000. Um, and this seems to have bolstered the market on, on the heels of, of Signature's bank close. I mean, there were so many people Sunday night and Monday morning before the markets opened wondering, is this going to be the meltdown that, that we've been, you know, I don't want to say expecting, but fearing uh, coming our way? And uh, it's not, right? I mean, as you mentioned, I think it's a very specific situation. It's in the name of the bank, right? Silicon Valley Bank. It's a, it's a specialty financial institution. For those that are in tech, Mike, or any kind of specialty industry, um, are you seeing a lot of these focused specialty lenders? And do you, uh, do you, do you advise people to stay to stick more with the, the old fashioned generalist institutions that we're, we're comfortable with? Well, I'd love to say in Canada we had multiple options, but we really don't. So that kind of limits the, uh, you know, shall we call it, the, the, the option to, to go in different directions. Certainly in the U.S., there's, there's, there's that specialty side of things. I think if you look in the U.K. and Britain, they've also got those opportunities. And, and I think that popped up quickly uh, one night earlier this week when uh, HSBC in the U.K. Uh, basically struck a deal with the government to buy the assets from Silicon Valley Bank U.K., for one pound. And now that sounds like a great deal. Obviously, what it did is it gave the depositors uh, a guarantee that they would continue to have access to their funds uh, and continue to be able to play within the tech space that we're, they're in. There will no doubt be some major gain at the end of the day for HSBC once this all settles out. But what it managed to do, and, and, and I think there was the, the urgency with which the government and HSBC came to a deal, was one that ultimately served to bolster the industry, allow the depositors to have access to their money based on an HSBC's massive banking uh, footprint, uh, and kind of took a lot 
lot of the fear out of that environment. And again, I, I don't see the U.S. government here propping up HS, uh, sorry, SVB. Uh, I think it's all going to come from, and you'll have a similar scenario where somebody here will buy that. Interestingly enough, the big, and, and, I'll, and I'll swing it back to your tech question, <laughs> is that uh, some of the big complaints in the UK came from a lot of banks that are specializing in the UK sector that were complaining that HSBC, because it's such a behemoth, uh, had access to do a deal where maybe this would have been better to be sprinkled amongst other uh, tech-centric banks in the UK uh, to allow for a much uh, a, a much more diversified market. I think the problem here is the UK government was facing a very simple decision. Step in now, solve this, and any kind of deal where they, the, the smaller tech banks or individually or a consortium would have taken time, and, and I don't think the government wanted that time to, to have an effect on the marketplace. Part, I think, of the problem uh, that is destabilizing tech banking is crypto, from what I understand. And I want to tell you a story that happened to me this week, Mike. I had a, an entrepreneur. He asked me for my advice because he, he received a call in English from someone who wanted some money in order for him to access his crypto investment. Turns out his data was leaked. Someone was trying to scam him. I asked him, well, which, which crypto bank do you use? He didn't really know. He mentioned something, you know, some generic kind of name. I Googled it and there was only one alert. I think it was by the Alberta Regulatory Authority or something like that, so something very vague, but it, it appeared nowhere else. And, and as I was doing this research, I, I found that there were no alerts because there are so many crypto exchanges that are sketchy uh, and that are frankly just taking people's money that uh, the regulators can't even keep up with the number of alerts they have to issue to warn people about them. I can't preach enough caution when you're dipping into the crypto market. You know, it's one of the issues that crypto has totally, you know, baffled all of us in, in, in the, the, the depth and the width with which money and, and you know, sizable investors have, have moved forward in is you're moving into an environment that has zero let's maybe not zero regulation, but pretty close to zero regulation in a crypto market. So you're going to take a banking system, which we know in Canada is highly regulated. Um, you're going to take a banking system in the U.S., which is not nearly as highly regulated as the Canadian banking system, but still has a very sophisticated under, uh, you know, underside to it in terms of what props it up and your reserves and everything else. And all of a sudden now you're going to throw crypto into this that has like I said, zero standards. I mean, we can't even agree to, you know, how anybody's even going to assess that from a tax perspective and how a, gum, a government or a different country is going to price all of this. So, you know, it, it's, it's a little bit like the Wild West out there in, in the crypto world. And, and I'm not saying that the crypto world is, is, is illegal and, and wrong. It just need, we need to find some kind of basis. And until such time as you get that, you know, you're, you're, you're going to have what you're talking about. You're going to have a lot of rogue uh, exchanges. You're going to have a lot of, unfortunately, rogue uses for crypto. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. We've moved away from an environment and, and, and an economy that has really moved away from cash. Right. I mean, we'll call it uh, the tech world, call it uh, COVID for whatever reasons. And the moment you reduce the cash, you know, a lot of times you reduce a lot of that underbellied criminal involvement. Well, we've moved away from cash. We've gone into crypto and, you know, it, this is having a big effect. And and you're right. This whole crypto discussion was really what brought Signature Bank down on, on Sunday. Uh, and all of a sudden, you know, a whole bunch of people with a whole lot of investments just didn't know where to go. Don't forget, uh, we still don't know who, who invented Bitcoin. I think that's weird that we have a currency. No one knows where it comes from. <laughs>
I, I pretty much think it's just somebody that wants to sit back and laugh and, and watch us all once again uh, scramble as we try to create something uh, something from nothing. But hey, what do you want? I, no conspiracy theory here whatsoever. And let's get right to our distinguished guests. His name is Franz Saint-Elemy. He's the president and COO of Letter Tech. Uh, that is an industrial sensor company. They do sensory applications for vehicles. We'll get into that. He is the co-founder of the BIPOC entrepreneurship incubator called Group 3730. Set. And uh, there's one more thing. He's the Chancellor of UDM, Université de Montréal, uh, Franz Saint-Elemy. Welcome to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal. Hey, thank you for having me. Quite delighted to be with you today. I want to quickly read a quote and have you react to it. This is from uh, La Presse, who recently named you as one of the, the true influencers of Quebec. This is from François Cardinal. There are so-called influencers, those who sell their name and image, the highest bidders in social media like modern sandwich men. Then there are the real influencers, those who have a positive effect on society, who inspire, who encourage uh, betterment, who use their title and reputation to collectively lift us up. Uh, how did it feel to see here those words written by La Presse, uh, Mr. Saint-Elemy? Well, I, you know, I was surprised, uh, but, you know, it's a positive surprise. Um, you know, I'm a product of people who believed in me, who have uh, pushed me in the background, who are not in the limelight. And I feel that um, success comes with the responsibility of, you know, enabling others uh, to achieve the same kind of success or, or even more success. So... I think influencers in general uh, or in the background are those that actually make things happen without guess, getting the limelight or being in the limelight. And, and the fact that La Presse is recognizing uh, my contribution in, in my own way um, to the ecosystem and to making society a better place, is, it's, it's, it's nice. <laughs> We're actually going to talk about two organizations, and we ask at the beginning that you define both, actually. And so let's let's deal with Letter Tech in a second, but tell me about Group 3737. Yeah, Group 3737 is an incubator accelerator that really focuses on um, establishing um, entrepreneurship development programs for people with, um, you know, immigration and diverse backgrounds. And, and the idea there is really to reverse the model. If you think of traditional acceleration program, it's sort of like a pyramid program where you're, you're building, you're funneling the cream of the crop, uh, the, the smartest of the smartest into a 16-week program. And then you surround them with the best, the best possible that, that the, the country can offer. And you hope that one or two uh, uh, comes out of it with a successful project. Um, we think at Group 37, this model should actually be reversed. You should have the widest scope as possible. And in fact, go where it's unlikely to find entrepreneurship success in areas, in, 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 in subsectors of society where you most likely will not find uh, the most successful. And then give them the tools to enable them to be successful. And that's what we did with the 3737. We built a program that was accessible to anyone who had an idea and a desire to be an entrepreneur. And we leverage our capabilities and our network and to, to create an acceleration program that is tuned for their capabilities rather than uh, tuning for, um, let's say, an elite uh, type of, of, uh, of, of capability. And, um, we founded the group in, in March 2012, and in so far, we've, we've actually been 
successful at accompanying more than 1,500 entrepreneurs across Canada. Uh, we've turned $20 million in private investments into $1.8 billion in, in value creation. And so we think that it's a huge success that doesn't necessarily require that much investment, but it does deliver um, sustainable success. You know, I, I just want to go back maybe, Dan, for one quick second here to that article in La Presse, because I think that there's there, there's a lot of, of uh, Mr. Santelame's, um, shall we say, history that really speaks to why that the vastness. I mean, you've got a phenomenal educational background, which, you know, I'd like you to maybe just touch on at some point. You've got a huge experience in the business industry in Canada, in the U.S., and in Germany. Um, you're an individual who has a clear impact on the community. Um, I mean, anybody who's surprised with the, the, the words that came from La Presse clearly doesn't know, I guess, the, the, the history that you bring with you. And I would like to take a little bit of a step back here. I mean, I know you graduated from Northeast. Eastern University in 1996. And, you know, I, I'm not going to do the math, but that goes back a few years at this point. And, and you've done an awful lot since then to get where you are today. I, I love your thirst for knowledge. I love your thirst to, to move things forward. What, what has driven you since you graduated from Northeastern in, in 1996? And what brings you to the point you're at today? I, I think maybe it's, it's synchronicity. You know, I was always, you know, I wasn't born in Canada. I was born in Haiti. And I think part of, of my, my thirst for knowledge was maybe I was not um, um, lucky in the beginning to have such huge access, such access to huge playing field. And I think once I've discovered, um, you know, uh, through Northeastern, what they have this co-op program, this co-op program where students get to be, um, uh, working early on with companies on complex projects, I realized that I love complex problem solving. I realized that, you know, all I had to do was to actually ask. And, and, and if I didn't know, if I would ask the right people, then I'd be, uh, I'd be given this access to this incredible knowledge or network of people that I could leverage to find knowledge. And, and I, and I got, just got hungry and hungrier for, for knowledge. If you look at, you know, my early years, I was exposed to basically my neighborhood. And all of a sudden, I'm 18, 19, I'm exposed to the, the cream of the crop of technology industry. And so me, it's like a kid in a candy store when you have these people that are inventing the next technologies that everyone is using across the globe. And once I figured that knowledge was, was cheap and accessible, um, then, then there was no stopping me. So I, so I think that's probably, it starts with the fact that I didn't have access to it. And then all of a sudden I, I, I realized that I do have access to it. And it it's dependent on me to acquire that knowledge. Um, then, then it became really, really interesting because I got exposed to you know, the semiconductor industry. For some of your listeners who don't understand the value of semiconductors, I mean, nothing, what we're doing today, we're leveraging technology. Nothing happens without semiconductors. These transistors that are critical for your laptops, your cell phones, your microphones, your, your, your TV screens, or your fridge, or your stove, or your alarm system, all of these things require um, uh, semiconductors. And I was building the semiconductors that were 
um, impacting people's daily lives. And that got me very interested in figuring out, okay, how can we leverage technology to augment human capacity? Can we leverage technology to actually do things, democratize access to, um, you know, deep technology, but, but to the vast majority, not the elite majority or those that have, capa that have uh, um, financial capacities. And so I, I also realized that you could, you know, leverage technology to also um, level the playing field. So, you know, today at a push of a button, we can send um, our message, um, this broadcast here to billions of people potentially. And that's, that's something you couldn't do 20 years ago. And that's, yeah. that's through technology. And, and so, so I, I just became excited and you can see I'm still excited by by the possibilities. I don't, I don't think the thirst for knowledge in an individual ever goes away. I mean, you made that point that it's dependent on you. And I think that's a lot of things that are lost from a lot of people today is they expect education or information to come to them and you have to have that knowledge for it. And, you know, when you said that we could push a button and get this radio show to a billion people, Dan's eyes got huge. So, you know, I'm, I, Dan, I'm going to pass it over to you and let you take it from there. That's a lot of pressure, but I, I would say that on the subject of tech, let's let's talk about LiDAR tech right now. And when you when you were explaining what a semiconductor is, you know, I, my I, a lot of people just don't know. I mean, there's a lot of education that has to take place there. So tell me um, how you got into the semiconductor space and how you use them in some industrial applications. I believe in in automotive applications as well. Right. So so I you know I got through uh, the semiconductor space because of of Northeastern. Uh, one of my co-op companies was this company called Analog Devices. So I started working uh, right um, from the onset uh, with mentors and, um, you know, engineers that had a significant impact. These were, um, let's say, what I would call fellows. Uh, these were end end industrial pioneers. And, and so the first products that, that uh, I was working on was... Um, uh, you know, analog to digital converters. So essentially human beings, we are in the analog domain and the computer or, or the, let's say the, the operates in the digital domain. So it's ones and zeros. We are, we are into signs and waves. So, so heat, voice, sound, everything is analog. And so for the machine and the humans to collaborate or to connect, we need to convert the analog domain into the digital domain and vice versa so that the machine can actually interact with humans. And, and that's how I got involved in, you know, the audio industry. And um, so I, you know, I started to develop uh, technologies for, for voice, for sound, for digital media. And so we built um, technologies and the whole idea was at that time, can we take the professional sounds from the studio professional media and bring that same sound voice and image quality from the studio into your home and then from your home into your car. So the same media can be uh, come straight out of the produ production uh, studio and then it can operate in, in, your, in your home as well as in your car with the same quality. And so we built technologies for that and it became a huge success. And that's how I really got involved in the automotive space. And so, and now car infotainment is fairly standard. 
So you expect to have a digital map when you get into your car. You expect to have um, now voice-activated commands. Um, these were all because of these, what we call separate converters, analog to digital converters, digital to analog converters, and digital signal processors that we built at Analog Devices. And so now at LetterTech, what we're doing is we're taking it to another level. Can we use technology to um, give access to safety? So the way safety in automobiles work today, then, is it's at a premium. So your capacity to buy an expensive vehicle makes your vehicle more safe. So a Volvo XC90, which is $150,000 car, is the safest car out there. But if you only have $30,000 to buy a car, your car isn't as safe. Now, that's a tragedy. I, 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 don't, I don't subscribe to that. That, to me... Uh, means if, if we can make a smartphone for $1,000 that is more complex than any supercomputer out there, then why couldn't we make technologies that, that are accessible for the masses to, make their, to save lives? There's 1.3 million people that die from benign car accidents. The number one culprit is the human error. And so if we could use technology to augment capacity of, of human beings to, to have a 360 degree peripheral view and then help them identify and classify obstacles, help the vehicle make braking or steering decisions while the human being is still in control, then we can save lives. So at LetterTech, we develop software that recreates the environment in three dimension uh, in a super high resolution 30 times per second. So, so think about the human eye, we recreate the environment about 15 to 20 times per second. Well, uh, the, this software allows to do that 30 times per second. And then we embed it into the vehicle so that the vehicle now has this 360 degree view of its environment so that you, if you don't see in your blind spot, the vehicle always sees in the blind spot. So if there's somebody in your blind spot, it sees. If you miss the red light, uh, the vehicle knows there's an obstacle in front of you, and it then allows the vehicle to make those intelligent decisions. So that's what we are building at LetterTech. It's software that's using an artificial intelligence uh, and data that comes from your camera, from your radar, from ultrasound uh, software, but also from your map and also from the interfaces that are in the vehicles, such as the door interface, the window interface, all the, let's call it wherever we can get data, we use that data, we process the data to help us recreate uh, this unique environment for the vehicle. So think about what we do as the eyes and ears of the vehicle. I find, it, I find it fascinating. And Dan, after the break, I think we're going to come back on two topics that really just that, that grabbed me when I was going through all of this is the uh, the best explanation, I guess, uh, Mr. Santelame, is the interactive demo dashboard on the website, which I thought was fascinating to, to, to drive people to, to, to maybe visualize what you're talking about here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm a country boy. I grew up in the country. I, you know, there's a use to this that goes beyond autos for industrial right. farming equipment and everything else. Correct. Uh, Mr. Sentimley, thanks again for joining us. And let's start um, uh, by just digging into the tech a little bit. So interesting applications in terms of safety for, for cars and other vehicles. Um, but as Mike was saying, you know, you can take this in, in a bunch of different directions. 
what other directions are you taking this technology in and uh, how else can uh, we as humans um, better interact with the machines that are supposed to be serving us? Right. So so if you think of the context of, you know, um, operator assistance or driver assistance. So in the passenger vehicle, we are building these driver assistance um, software and systems that helps um, the driver be safe. Uh, that's operating in the background continuously so that it keeps the driver safe at all, all, all time. Well, the same technology can be used for operator assistance. So Mike was talking about agriculture. Um, so agriculture, uh, mining, forestry, um, you know, even construction. Um, you know, labor shortage is a, is a massive problem for these industries. In fact, cost of producing uh, um, um, fruits and vegetables and, and, and you know, all these, these, the food that we eat today, um, it's, a, it's a real problem. Finding resources is, is a problem. So if we can now build these types of, of vehicles that can operate autonomously or that can actually operate in a fleet by teleoperation. So you have one operator that's operating two or three machines at a distance, or if you have a picker that actually can recognize, oh, that's an apple. And I can pick that apple automatically without having humans physically picking that apple. So you can have automated pickers, you know, uh, automated lifts and so forth. So you have a number of applications where this can be applicable in, let's say, agriculture, forestry, mining and construction. But even in, in your factories, there are many high risk jobs today that requires human intervention that can be automated using the same software. Again, it's about recreating the environment so that the machine recognizes its environment, identifies, detects, and classifies the, the objects that are in the scene, just like you and I, we do. We, we identify, okay, that's a box, and I cannot walk over that box. And so you could do the same thing for the machine, uh, for either a, a box picker or a robot, an industrial robot. Um, so you could automate the, in, uh, the factories and, and again, address issues of, of uh, labor shortage, uh, cost of production, um, and become more productive. Canada is a massive country. It's huge. It's, it's, there's more land than we can imagine. And it's impossible to cover all these lands. And it's impossible to autonomously, uh, sorry, to, to physically map uh, all this land as well and keep the map up to date. So again, mapping is another example. You can use planes or drones or even robots to actually go and survey and map. Um, and, you know, detecting the health um, uh, of, of animals, um, safety of animals, uh, mapping the environment, surveying the landscape. Uh, so I can go on medical applications. So again, you know, imagine now you're, we have shortages of nurses and doctors and surgeons. Imagine you can use the same technology now to automate, um, to recreate uh, the organs, to recreate uh, your body in three-dimensional to allow physicians to make faster um, decisions. Um, in terms of of, uh, um, of illness or surgeries, these technologies can be used across many, many industries.
just to think when I originally looked at all of this, I was looking at it also from the individuals around the equipment. Uh, so if we're talking farming equipment, you're talking a harvester, you know, it's not that often that the driver of the harvester gets hurt, but it may be some of the workers that have been in the field or around the barn or on a construction site. So I think this is a, you know, a fascinating application uh, across the board. And, you know, all I can keep thinking of when I look at all of this is, is this going to replace my wife critiquing my driving? Because if it is, sign me up right now. I want to take as much of this technology as I can get. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I, I get that a lot. Um, you know, so so if you think about flying today, right? Um, flying, um, you know, the pilot is assisting the robot that's flying. The pilot is there as, as just as a co-pilot for the automated system. It's the safest mode of transportation known to mankind today. Um, and so, so, but we don't have less pilots. In fact, we need more pilots. If anything, uh, automated flying has accelerated, has reduced the cost of flying, has reduced the number of incidents and has made it easier to build those planes, believe it or not because you're building it in a context of automation, not in a context of human beings. And so therefore uh, you have a plethora of, of, of opportunities. So think about you know, uh, um, driver assistance in the context of the driver in for let's say 50, 60% of the time is distracted, believe it or not. The driver is distracted 50, 60% of the time because we're not focused on, on all the things where we're, our minds drift in and out, whether we're on a conference call, whether we're look, sir, looking at the land. We're not, the, the vehicle in itself, the automation system can be 100% focused on the task all the time. It's not replacing the human being, but it's augmenting the human capacity and really allowing you to regain that time, that 50, 60% of the time where you're stressed trying to multitask, now you can be focused. You can actually have a real conversation because the vehicle is keeping you on that lane for you, is <laughs> is actually keeping you 99.9% .9 of the time in your lane at 100 kilometers per hour or 95 kilometers per hour. And so I need you to get one of those for my bike. I have a hard time keeping it upright. Maybe it'll help. <laughs> There you go. Well, there are autonomous bikes know, that are out there. <laughs> we have to ask uh, uh, Francine telling me, you know, uh, you you're, you seem very busy. How much time of your of your day? How do you balance everything between a nonprofit and, of course, between academia as well, which is very, which can be very uh, time consuming. Yeah, being a, a professional uh, technologist uh, requires a lot of time and effort and dedication. And it's difficult to be successful if you don't have hobbies, if you don't have things that takes your mind away from the day-to-day -day grind of working. Uh, I work um, probably 10 hours a day on LetterTech, maybe 12 sometimes, my wife will tell me. Um, you know, um, and, and I need to disconnect. And disconnecting is, is really engaging with people, helping others. Um, you know, so this nonprofit group 3737 allows me to get my mind off of complex technology problems. It gets my, while focusing on helping other human beings realize their dreams. Um, and uh, education to me, we're all 
as a society, what makes us a great society, what makes Canada uh, unique is that higher education is accessible to everyone at low cost. And it's my, I'm a product of education. It's my fiduciary duty to give back to society, to the next generation by helping improving education, by bringing my experiences into um, the university environment. So as chancellor and chair of the board of the University of Montreal, my role is really uh, on one hand to be the ambassador and, uh, for the university. Over the next 10 years, University of Montreal, one of the, the major charters is really to help the university become more innovative, more digital, more connected uh, on a global basis, uh, but also more local, connected to its community, be an actor for change in society. Um, and so the research that we do at the University of Montreal um, is really about uh, researching things that will impact society for many decades to come. Um, but also at the same time, uh, we have to be more productive as a society. We have to convert those research into innovations. So more entrepreneurial, uh, more connected to real world, real life problems. And, um, and so to me, it's, it's the most rewarding thing that I can do with my spare time is to help the university uh, be more impactful to society. It, it, it fascinates me. Uh, you know, I am uh, a little, a little cerebral at times and um, you know, the amount of things that we do outside of our, shall you call it, you know, as you called it your 10 or 12 hour days and whether that's, you know, philanthropy, I, all it does is continue to increase our, our brains, our contributions to society. And, and I guess part of the frustration I've had, and Dan, we have talked about this many times during COVID and, and everything else has been, you know, the, the people seem to have shut down on a lot of things. You know, they're, they're very restricted in what they're doing, looking more for a little more social time that, dare I say, the work-life balance contribution. And, you know, the, the discussion that I have constantly is this, how, how, how can you be imp impactful? How can you make where we, are, where we are a better place? And, you know, listening to you talk uh, fascinates me because I, I think there's a similarity. I certainly do not pretend to have the education and the background that you have, but that thirst for knowledge and that thirst for hunger is what keeps our society society and our communities going. And, and I think, you know, hats off to you for not just the, the, the economic things that you have done, but I think the, the thought leadership and the brain power that you bring forward. Yeah. And I don't think they're mutually exclusive, Mike. I, I, I do feel that, you know, we have to, mm -hmm. as a society, what makes us so valuable as a society is the fact that we can offer um, cheap health care, uh, cheap education, um, or I shouldn't say cheap because it sounds bad, low-cost healthcare, lower-cost education, lower-cost housing. Uh, we can afford to feed everyone, um, in many cases, even waste food, uh, tragically. Uh, we can afford the things that we, we have that some other countries don't have is the fact that our education system works. So we transfer knowledge, we give tools to, to kids, uh, at a young age until they become adult and then they go back to society and contribute back to that same society that, that helped bring them up. And I think what we can't lose sight of is we need to be productive. We need to innovate. 
We need to sell more products. We need to develop more products. And we also need more tools and equipments that are necessary to augment our own capacity so we become more productive. And that gets recycled back into you know, the healthcare, it, in social services, in education, in all the things, in policing, in, in, um, in keeping our borders safe. Um, so we can't lose sight of that. And I think part of, of what you're mentioning it, it speaks to me because we're talking about work-life balance. And, you know, I give 10 hours to Lettertech, but I also give three, four hours to, let's say, the university or Group 3737. In fact, we as society, we always think that the for-profit is the most important thing. We've got to work for profit. But society doesn't function if you don't have social entrepreneurs. If you do not have these social workers, these people that are working in the healthcare system with mental health, that are these teachers and professors, um, if we don't equip them with the right tools so that they can properly educate our children, society is dysfunctional. And I think this is where we've lost sight of what makes society great, is we focus on the for-profit, but it's at the expense of social work. And we all have responsibility on the social side. Education is a perfect example of that. I, I totally agree. And, and, and my problem with the term work-life balance, which goes back, it's one of those words we're not allowed to say around, Mike, uh, is because... The term, it, to me, defines a delineation between being on and being off, okay? And to me, that's not the way we should be. I agree that, you know, work and, and the for-profit component, but we need to redefine life uh, to a certain degree. And I think that redefining life is perfectly what you've expressed today is, is you know, that contribution outside. It just because it's not sitting behind your desk or under your normal, you know, nine to five or, or seven to seven job. Uh, that you know, what do you do with your spare time? What do you do with that time that is off the clock type of thing? And I think that's what has a huge advancement within our society. And you know, it's it's why one of my first questions to you was this thirst for knowledge and this you know that there there's so much that goes with this that is you know way beyond dollars and cents and 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 advancing technology. It really is about the human condition to a very large degree. Indeed, especially in this digital day and age, we are. Um, you know, I have, I have imagined that I meet some kids who tell me they know how to read, they know how to count, they know how to write, but they're illiterate in, a digital, in an increasingly digital world. Don't ask now, for change at the store. Right? <laughs> so it's, it, this is where we lose sight of this, this, this divide that's, that's, that's being created. And this is where we need social entrepreneurship. We need education to bridge that gap because, you know, to a certain degree, um, what I'm doing at Lettertech and what I did previously is only a vehicle for me to do more of the other stuff. If it's, if I'm doing Lettertech only to build my bank account, then as a human being, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do, but it's what gets rewarded. You know, if I didn't have Lettertech, people wouldn't necessarily be talking about me. If I didn't have ZMD before that, people wouldn't be necessarily talking about me. So this is where I think when you say a life, work-life balance, I think it's more or less, how do we define success? 
is success because I have this bank account or I delivered X products that were sold? Or is it success where I've actually helped my environment be a better place? I actually have helped other human beings be more successful. I think we need to think through, through as a society, what are the things that are most important? But innovation on both sides, innovation socially, because without social innovation, we don't have Medicare. We don't have universal education accessible to everybody. That's social innovation, ladies and gentlemen, where we can also have for-profit innovation, making your cars safer, making, you know, um, when you go to work, you don't have to bend as much as we used to to lift things that wouldn't be acceptable today. If you had to lift 100 pounds 50 times a day, it wouldn't be acceptable. Well, technology has enabled us to do that. That's innovation. And on both sides, they're equally as important. And what I'm saying here, if you do one more than the other, there's this unbalance and this imbalance creates chaos. I would love to hear the work-life balance term change to uh, impact. Hmm. What's my impact in the world? Hmm. And I think that would probably make me feel a little more comfortable than using work-life balance. (laughs) (laughs) And a little bit more for our podcast audience now with Franz Saint-Élemy uh, for, from UDM, uh, Ledger Tech, and as well, uh, Group 3737, um, on inspiring young entrepreneurs, especially Gen Zs and, and your students, um, the people that, that are in the halls at UDM, uh, Franz Saint-Élemy. You know, uh, I wonder about uh, how Gen Zs especially are performing during the pandemic. Um, I feel like as a nation, we may have missed some opportunities there. What are you hearing in the halls? And, and what words do you have to inspire 20-somethings especially who feel that they, their careers have been interrupted by, by recent times? You know, there's, there's the biggest piece of advice that I can give to someone today that's starting out is, is dare to make mistakes. Um, if, if you're not um, trying something that's super hard, super complicated, then, then, then you're not going to grow as much as your potential could, could allow you to. And I think it's, it's so easy to fall into comfort because we reward success. We don't reward failure. We live in a society where failure isn't as positively viewed as success, but I've learned more from my failures than any success that I've had. I've grown more than my fail, uh, during my failures than during any success that I've had. And so my failures have allowed me to travel the world um, because, you know, I've dared to try something different. And somebody from across the globe in Germany said, hey, can you come and try that in Germany? Because we think that you could be successful in Germany. And I've done that in the U.S. I've done that elsewhere. And I think every time that I've tried something super complex, something where everybody has said it's impossible to do, I've always came out on top because the worst that happened to me is I've actually landed closer to the final objective. And that's usually way more, way, way more than the vast, vast majority. So dare to push the boundaries, dare to try something different, get out of your comfort zone, fail. It's okay, fail. 
Wow, thank you very much. Powerful words. Franz Saint-Élémy, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Uh, you are the Chancellor of Université de Montréal, Chair of the Board there as well, co-founder of Group 3737 and President and CEO of Letter Tech. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Mike, any other follow-up questions? Uh, last ones for the podcast? or? Sorry, I just want you to mark the time that you said CEO, just the last one. Oh, did I just say, I didn't say CEO? Mark the time. Okay, got, got it. I thought I said COO, but noted. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Great. Well, Mike, if, uh, well, thank you again. Um, just, the, the only point I was going to raise, I think, was in, in, in your, uh, your piece of advice is, is it's, it's not just the failure component, it's the learning yes. component that comes Correct. with it. Uh, a lot of people fail and quit. And, yes. you know, the side of being able to fail and recognize your mistake and move on and try and either not repeat it or move in a different direction is is the entrepreneurial spirit yes. at the end of the day. There's an awful lot of people I know who fail and just walk away and turn around and give that up, you know, true. and, and I, I think that and I, I thought about that, you know, it's OK to fail, <clears throat> just learn from it and redo it again. Yeah, you keep trying to explain that to my kids. There's nothing wrong with failing, but you just keep going until you get it. Once you've got it, then you can quit. Well, you know, the, the one analogy that I like to make is, is between sports and entrepreneurship. So athletes, they fail 99.9% .9 of the time. But that 1% or that 0.1% of success is what we get to see. That's when they're in the Olympics. They break the records. That's when they're in the NBA and making uh, 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 buzzer beater shots. So they fail. And, you know, another example is, is bodybuilding. Um, for you to grow muscles, you got to destroy the old muscles. You got to break the muscles. And for you to learn, you actually have to break you know, some, some old institutional knowledge or comfort zone to rebuild to you. So you got to erase and rewrite in order to actually learn something new. So, you know, these, these failure is, is actually, it's the most fundamental part of growing is you've got to learn um, through your failures. And uh, it's such a, it's such an under, misunderstood uh, mechanism. Research is all about trial and error. Yeah, so if, we, if, you, if you couch it as research, it's okay. Yes. Right? I mean, that's the way our society accepts it. I had or somebody, training. Yeah, or, or training. training. Like I said, oh, you, you, you got beat. Okay, that's good. But it doesn't really count because it's training. Like it's, it's yes. when you're, you know, I had somebody explain to me years ago after, you know, 19 years sitting as managing partner of Fuller and, and, um, and I got to tell you that, you know, I've made more mistakes than I've gotten right, but I'm a firm believer in execution. I'm a firm believer in decision-making as part of the errors. And if somebody explained it to me one day, it was, the conversation was a simple one. He said, you know, compare yourself to another individual. So you're going to make a hundred decisions and you're going to get 50, 60 of them right. Okay. And somebody else is going to take their time over the course of a year and make one decision and get it right. So if you go with the, 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 the statistical model we were brought up with, the other individual has, has, has got a better average, right? They got one, made one decision. They got one thing, right? He said, look at it this way. He said, if you went to bat a hundred times for the New York Yankees and you hit the ball 60 times, do you have any idea how much money you would be making? Legend. He said, and that's, and, and that's a very effective discussion, right? It's you can have made 
decision or no decisions and decisions and never be wrong. And you, you're, you're not the man in the arena mentality where you're willing to on a limb. And, and, and I applaud you for this because I think that this is a phenomenal message. Um, and uh, it just cut, didn't. We heard most of that, but I think it was All right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, it's a, but we need to create a safe environment. Mm -hmm. um, we need to, you know, also um, get away from the traditional uh, review processes, you know, so um, you had to deliver <laughs> 10 things and you delivered only seven. Yeah, but the three that I missed, they're the ones that are creating value because those ones will stay forever because we won't make those mistakes again, because we've learned from them, right? That's value creation. But the way we also do uh, uh, evaluations is, uh, is we do linear when it should be horizontal, because if you measure me by what I did only, that's severely understating my impact, severely, because I do horizontal growth. I know a little bit and I pass it on to a lot of people. That little bit becomes a lot, a lot, right? The exponential so nature of what you're right? doing. Encouraging collaboration, encouraging knowledge transfer, encouraging dialogue and communication. How much have I done, you know, throughout the, the year that I've worked uh, with this group to transfer knowledge across the board? to create an environment where team actually does more than the sum of the individuals. That's how we should, this, it sounds, you know, it sounds so simple, but that's, why can't we do it? Uh, we take, we take, we, we take term and we have to find a way to be in businesses as we have in the profit sector. And I go back to the word, right. As a, as a, as a charity, as a, as a, a social looking to make an impact and to be making the same impact on spaces as well one last question um speaking of dollars transfer uh, talk about your family and and your kids your your wife is a, a successful entrepreneur in her own right uh, vicky joseph of v cosmetics uh, they were making lines of cosmetics for people of of color for a while now before the i guess before the big corporations started on that uh, on that trend in recent years First of all, a lot of pressure on your kids, probably, to tell me about the atmosphere at home. Uh, do they feel that pressure? And uh, how do you guys, as a family, manage your time? It's a very good question. Uh, in fact, um, you know, I don't think we see pressure. What we see is, you know, we, we, are, we are problem solvers. We like to tackle problems. And our children are part of what we do every day, actually they're participating in, in, in these activities. So they know exactly what we're trying to do, what we're doing, and they also know how they can contribute. So um, in fact, they, we learn from them. Um, they ask questions, why are we doing it that way? Why not that way? Um, you know, so for example, we don't use uh, the term um, using for people of color. It, you know, it, start, it came from our daughter. She said, you know, you're, we're developing products for people who have atypical skin types. And that's, that's so true. And she's 14, by the way. But wow. in her mind, you know, anyone can use the products, especially those that have atypical skin types. And it's so true. It's the pigmentation that determines if you need, whether you're white or black or yellow, whatever your skin tone might be. 
it's your skin, individual skin requirements that makes the product useful. And so this is coming from a 14-year-old child. And, and so by involving them in the discussions in the business, we learn so much. We also learn um, through our kids that they don't need us to do that much more. They just need to be involved. They just need to be part of. They don't feel the urge of us playing with them um, versus working with them or versus involving them. They feel that they're part of whatever we're doing and they enjoy it. So I don't I, I don't see it as pressure. I think the pressure comes from them wanting us to involve them more. <laughs> uh, well, that'll do it. Thanks so much for the extra time on, on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Awesome show. Thank you so much. We could talk for hours, just the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. We'll have the one piece of advice from our distinguished entrepreneur in a few minutes, uh, France Saint-Elemy from uh, Group 3737, Ledartech, and in his spare time, Chancellor of Université de Montréal. So here's one piece of advice on the way, plus lots of extra material on the podcast for you uh, with him as well. But let's get to our expert. His name is Jean-François Audet, Transaction Services Partner at BDO Canada. And we're going to talk about uh, how businesses can prep for tough economic times ahead. Welcome back, Jean-François. Thank you for having me, Dan. And those transactions, uh, have, they, have they started to drop off yet? Are we, are we in pre-recessionary times? It's, uh, you know what, Dan, if I had a crystal ball, that would be such an easy question, but there is no such thing. Um, like if you just look at the key matrix out there, uh, inflation is starting to come down a bit from the heights of June 2022. Now we're around 6%, still targeting to, to attain 2%. Um, interest rates, uh, the Fed mentioned that they're still open and increasing the rate. The Bank of Canada this week, they just kept the rate uh, at the same level. You know, we're still having issues in the supply chain, not as bad as what we've seen in the last few months, but still some struggle. Uh, same with the labor market. Uh, and one other component uh, that is worth mentioning, we, we don't have any more free money in the market. So companies now, they're pretty much left on their own. They need to figure out how they're going to make it uh, in this, I don't want to say hostile environment, but certainly uncertain environment and challenging environment. And if I just had a layer to this, if we're just looking in terms of insolvency filings, um, it's still relatively low uh, from the heights that we've seen uh, back in 2020, sorry, 2029, 20, 28, uh, when it was a financial crisis. And we're not even back to the levels that we've seen just before the pandemic. So um, a lot of uncertainty looking forward. Um, but uh, again, pretty hard to predict what's going to happen in the next few months. To add insult to injury, JF, I mean, we're getting a Canadian dollar that's weakening against the U.S. dollar. Why? The, the Canadian government has basically stated they're going to keep interest rates where they are. And the American government now, with their continued fears of inflation, they're talking uh, that they may raise interest rates again. And once that spread between the Canadian and the U.S. interest rate drops, so does our Canadian dollar. Uh, and, and this is a concern, I think. Uh, we've already started the topic of conversations with a number of clients recently on their concern of 
what should I be pricing and in, in, in how am I should be factoring in the Canadian dollar over the next little while? Um, you know, are you, what, what's your feeling? I'm not going to ask you where you think the dollar is going to go, but you know, what, what do you think that impact of, of, a, of a weakening dollar as well as uh, the amount of time and energy people have to go back to putting into looking at trying to cost in an environment that is questionable? Listen, it's certainly going to be challenging, uh, but I think it's going to be good news for, you know, our businesses exporting uh, worldwide. But those companies that are not exporters, that, that that's likely going to be tough. Um, but I think, uh, y- you know, facing those uncertain time, you, you need to have the proper tools in your uh, in your toolbox. And I think one of the things uh, you know, you need to have that clear vision of what you want to do, what you want to accomplish uh, with your business. And it's it's not just having the idea. You need to lay it down on paper and have a solid business plan. You need to have projections. You need to set milestones. And it's it's not a document that you, you, you have to leave on the corner of your desk. It has to be a living document. You need to track the progress. And really, at the end of the day, I mean, that that's how you're going to be able to, uh, to to assess the progress. And, and again, uh, and as the guests before me said, I mean, it's, it's okay to make mistakes. Uh, and you, you just need to, to adapt as you're moving along into the process. But I, I guess one of the, the big thing also aside from having that plan and, you know, having projections and be, being able to have something that is flexible enough so you can, you know, navigate and, you know, uh, a- adapt as you move along, uh, you, you you need to be able to differentiate yourself in a marketplace and create that uniqueness or that attractiveness. So, you know, you, you can go in within that with, with that in, uh, hostile environment or that uncertain environment Um but uh, no, de- definitely uh, you, you need to come prepared. I mean, that, that would be probably the worst mistake to do, to take that lightly. Uh, you need to gear up, you need to prepare and uh, to face uh, those, those uncertain times. Jean-Francois Odette, Transaction Services Partner at BDO Canada. Thanks so much for stopping by. Thank you sure. very much. And as usual, as we get to the end of our show, we turn to our entrepreneur, Franz Saint-Elemy of Group 3737, COO of LetterTech, Chancellor of Université de Montréal, and we ask him for his one piece of advice for inspiring entrepreneurs, sir. You know, there's there's the biggest piece of advice that I can give to someone today that's starting out is, is dare to make mistakes. Um, if, if you're not um, trying something that's super hard, super complicated, then, then, then you're not gonna grow as much as your potential could, could allow you to. And I think it's, it's so easy to fall into comfort because we reward success. We don't reward failure. We live in a society where failure isn't as positively viewed as success, but I've learned more from my failures than any success that I've had. I've grown more than my fa- uh, during my failures than during any success that I've had. And so my failures have allowed me to travel the world um, because, you know, I've dared to try something different. And somebody from across the globe in Germany said, hey, can you come and try that in Germany? Because we think that you could be successful in Germany. And I've done that in the US. I've done that elsewhere. 
And I think every time that I've tried something super complex, something where everybody has said it's impossible to do, I've always came out on top because the worst that happened to me is I've actually landed closer to the final objective. And that's usually way more, way, way more than the vast, vast majority. So dare to push the boundaries, dare to try something different. Get out of your comfort zone. Fail. It's okay. Fail. Wow. Thank you very much. Powerful words. Franz Saint-Élemy, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Uh, you are the Chancellor of Université de Montréal, Chair of the Board there as well, co-founder of Group 3737 and President and CEO of Letter Tech. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. And before we go, don't forget for all tech entrepreneurs out there that applications are open for BDO's VC Pitch Day. So this gives selected emerging tech companies exclusive opportunities to pitch their business to incredible venture capital investors in May 2023. Visit go.bdo.ca/vcday for details. And don't forget you can subscribe to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal as a podcast on iHeartRadio, iTunes, or your favorite platform. And you can also log on to the website inspiringentrepreneursmtl.com for hundreds of local entrepreneur profiles from the last 15 years. See you next week. Talk.